What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Av Geek Chronicles podcast. I am your host, Colin, the chief Av Geek, aviation maniac, or whatever you want to call me. Welcome back, and I hope everyone is having a good start to your week. And I want to thank you again for joining me for another uh, another episode here on the Av Geek Chronicles podcast. Uh, got a good episode for you guys today, but you know I like to give kind of little quick synopsis. Cliff Note style of last week's episode, if you missed it. And last week, you know, I talked about something new and I started a new series. I started a new series on the podcast called First Time Flyer. And basically in First Time Flyer, anytime I fly somebody new uh, who is basically being introduced to aviation for the first time, I'm going to document basically the whole process of what I did and the whole experience uh, with them. So I did that for the, the first episode of First Time Flyer last week, released it for you guys. Um, if you followed the podcast, you'll remember back in episode 27, I spoke with my wife about how one should introduce someone new to aviation. And last week, you know, I went through step by step exactly what I did when I introduced someone to flying. And why do I do this? I mean, you guys are probably like, eh, who, who really cares? But I feel it's really, really important that, that people really have a process and, you know, kind of standardize how they introduce people uh, to flying. And it's such an important topic today because as more people are gaining an interest in this industry, I'm like, you know, really driven by the fact that pilot, the, you know, the job market for pilots in all aviation careers um, is really, really booming. But doing introductory flights is not about your skills or what you want to do. It's about your guest total experience. It's just like, you know, showing somebody a new car. You know, it's not about your knowledge. It's about making sure uh, the person you're with is having a fantastic experience and, you know, feels very, very safe and comfortable. And, you know, I really want to thank my, you know, my church pastor, Luke Davidson, for being an awesome co-pilot uh, on our flight together about a little over two weeks ago uh, and really testing me on so many great questions during our flight. You know, it was really an awesome experience introducing somebody new to aviation. I know there's a lot of people that can attest to this, that their favorite part is introducing new uh, new people. But you have to take the right steps to make sure your guests feel as safe and as comfortable as possible, especially if your guest has a wife and five kids. But it was a great episode. Make sure you go uh, go check it out. Um, I think you really, you guys are really, uh, really gonna love it. And I hope you guys take something, uh, take something away from it. And today we're bringing back another episode of the Ask the Av Geek Show. Very special episode today, everybody, because I'm bringing on the first individual who has direct ties into the military aviation side. And this is really cool because I haven't had anybody on the show so far that that has this type of connection. Why? Because they are a pilot in the military. Not only are they a pilot in the military, but they're going through the process uh, and they're a young aviator. So they have all this knowledge of how the process works, uh, what it takes to become uh, an aviator in the military, uh, and especially especially for my guest today, the uh, what it takes to be a naval aviator. So I'm happy to have on the episode today, Steel Phillips. Steel, how are you? Man, I'm good about yourself. Good, good. All right, so we're going to jump right into the podcast because I'm really super interested in uh, all the questions uh, that we're going to talk about today. But let's start off just kind of with you personally. How young are you? Where are you originally from? Where are you at now? Uh, let's uh, let's get the guests kind of uh, let them know who you are. Yeah, man, uh, 25. 
and I am currently living in uh, Virginia Beach. Um, and I'm from Tennessee, Nashville, Tennessee, originally. That's crazy. My parents actually just moved to uh, Nashville, Tennessee, originally from Omaha, Nebraska. But I don't know. They decided that they wanted to get out of the cold, and Tennessee was where they were going to go. <laughs> <laughs> Not sure that they'll remedy yeah. that in Nashville, but uh, yeah, it seems like it's a pretty uh, pretty big hotspot for moving into right now. Middle Tennessee is definitely an attractive place to be currently. Uh-huh. And, uh, and you went to, you stayed in Memphis for school, right? In Tennessee. That's right. Uh, and we'll, let's talk, uh, kind of a little bit about kind of how you grew up. So before we get into your flying career and kind of this new little entrepreneurial venture you're taking on, let's go back to your roots, you know, where everything started, uh, for you as an individual. So I like to, you know, figure out from all my guests kind of about their childhood, how they grew up. So how did you grow up? What kind of hobbies or sports were you into? Kind of let's talk about your childhood. Yeah, man. Uh, I was born in uh, Nashville, like I said. Uh, kind of moved around. Uh, had parents that, you know, my dad was always in Tennessee. Mom moved around for jobs and things. So lived in multiple states. Um, and really, you know, I, I would if I'm listening at home, I would say, you know, Tennessee is definitely where I identify with. But uh, yeah, growing up, I um, was always involved with swimming and soccer, or, you know, baseball, wh- whatever, you know, basic children's sports uh, that your parents put you through. Um, but yeah, it kind of really uh, struck a chord with me was swimming, continued that, uh, did that uh, pretty much, you know, throughout um, my younger years and then in high school. And then, um, yeah, I was back in high school in Tennessee and then you know, off to uh, Memphis for college with a uh, uh, the Naval Scholarship, um, which was probably, you know, probably the reason I went there. Mm-hmm. So were your kind of the hobbies that you were into and everything, did your, were your parents big swimmers or big into sports yeah, as well? Yeah, yeah. I think, I think that was a family thing for sure on both sides. Um, and it was also a way to like keep me in control in the summer and make sure that I... <laughs> you stayed <laughs> out of trouble. Yeah, exactly. Um yeah, my cousin would take me and, you know, we'd do practice in the morning. Then I'd be stuck at the pool all day until someone came and picked me up. So that was, it was definitely a pool rat growing up. Yeah, no, it, and it's kind of funny. And I, I love kind of asking these types of questions of all my guests, you know, because then it kind of makes them think back, you know, of everything that did. Because I really think it's kind of crazy. All, everybody in aviation, they had a piece of them that they were before they were in aviation. So it's always intriguing to see kind of how everybody was normal before they got to this crazy, crazy industry. But if you could think back to your childhood, is there anything now, you know, being as old as you are that you wish you could have experienced more as a kid growing up, maybe one thing or something? Um, I mean, that's hard to say. I feel pretty blessed with my childhood. I had great parents, had great family and, they did the best for me um, with what they had. So I was, you know, I, I think that I got a lot. Um, looking back, I don't have any like regrets. Yeah. Like that, you know, or things that, you know, I, the answer is no. I mean, I feel, you know, I'm pretty happy with where I was growing up. So, you know, now that, you know, you're in the Navy, uh, you know, as a helicopter pilot, when you were growing up, what did you think you were going to do when you grew up? Well, I, uh, I was president and lived in uh, Manhattan for 9-11. Uh-huh. Uh, mom worked on the, uh, the stock market. And uh, definitely that was probably, uh, as far as an event in my childhood, probably one of the more formative ones 
Um, and so I think maybe even before that, I knew I wanted to go in the military. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always thought war movies were cool and, you know, fire pilots, Navy SEALs, astronauts, you know, your average childhood heroes were definitely who I looked up to. And, and so, you know, looking at that now, I mean, that pretty much, would you say that you, you enjoy it now a lot more than you probably thought about back when you were yeah, young? Yeah, I think there's aspects that you just like, you don't even know what to anticipate, um, kind of especially starting a career in the Navy. And then there's certain things that you just didn't expect to enjoy so much. And then there's other stuff that you're just like, man, I didn't know I fucking had to do this too. <laughs> I didn't know I signed up. Really? Did I sign up to do this? Yeah. <laughs> because it's, so it's, it's, it's so crazy because when you, I mean, that was such a pivotal time, uh, you know, and I think I was in fifth grade is when 9-11 happened. But when that happened, and I mean, it was so pivotal for me, but for you, especially the warfighter, I mean, things are so much different now than they were for like those first 10 years when that happened and everything. Yeah. So, I mean, it's probably a crazy environment and probably a lot different than, I mean, you probably thought it would be. No, I mean, it's, and it's pretty wild to talk to, um, I mean, what's the drinking age now? What, like 1998? whatever talk to kids that are like drinking age and they just like 9-11 is not really something that they remember yeah you know um yeah i think i think i was old enough to realize what was going on because of the people that were affected Mm -hmm. around um i had classmates that lost parents you know uh at ps 87 so it's like uh that was something at the time I remember thinking like, oh, like everyone was so sensitive around me, especially because I moved to Tennessee, back to Tennessee almost immediately, was so sensitive around me about that subject. And I think at the time, like I remember, you know, people gave me books and stuff because they thought I was going to be mentally scarred from it. But I I don't think that it mentally scarred me, but it definitely gave me, I think, a sense of duty. And then also, you know, I, I, my grandfather started World War II and his father served in, you know, World War One, And if you go down the line, almost every major, you know, American battle, I've, I've had some kind of family. So I think that sense of duty came from, from that as well, maybe. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy. We have, uh, we have the Bush library here in, in Dallas, Texas, uh, jo- president George W. Bush. Uh, and one of the first things you get to inside his library is the nine 11 exhibit. I mean, in that, I mean, I've been through the thing whew, probably four or five times now. Every single time, it still moves me today. Like, I'm like, seriously. I actually have not been back to New York since that. Really? So, yeah. Um, it'll be, I'm sure it'll be an experience uh, to see the memorial. But you, yeah, I would, I would love. Do you want to? Go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I do. I mean, it's not something that I'm like. <laughs> Like I said, I'm not scarred from it, yeah. and it's maybe it's more out of coincidence not going back. But I think that would definitely, you know, make me feel some some way by you know seeing the names and it's you know it's, it's a big it's a big part of I think who you are, and I think a lot of people my age mm-hmm. and your age, I think everyone remembers where they were in class, where they were, how they heard it, and what was going on. So um, yeah. 
Yeah, I have to tell everybody. I'm like, I, I know exactly where I was. I know exactly where, if you took me back to the classroom, like today, I knew exactly where I was sitting. Like I'd know, but I couldn't tell you anything else about what happened in fifth grade, sixth grade, nothing. But I yeah. can tell you that. I definitely remember that. I actually don't even remember the following days after that, you know, moving and leaving New York. But I, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy how formative some of those kind of events can be in a child's life. But but I know I mean to your point it's also that date in history also was a lot of the reasons why a lot of people our age did join the military and yeah. felt that calling I mean which it's crazy how it it takes a big event like that for stuff like that to come out and the patriotism to come out but I mean it's really you know in the end of the day like seeing all the people who a have given their life and b just gone through the process you know even if it's for four years enlisted. I mean, it's still, it's, it's a huge deal, uh, for everybody. And I know for me, I have mad, mad respect, uh, for it. So, I mean, for me, thanks again for all that, uh, for all that you do. Uh, oh, no, thank you for, <laughs> I think it's funny to put a segue in there, especially with all of my friends in the military, everyone always messes with each other. And when you're trying to get under someone's skin or trying to like point out that someone's being too moto, you're always like, thank you for your service, bro. Yeah. So, <laughs> That it's funny to it's you take that and you hear it from someone outside and you kind of like it's 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 so funny the connotations you hear that inside the military mm-hmm. versus outside. Um, so now I do appreciate your support, man. All right, so let's uh, kind of let's let's deep deep dive into a little bit more about you know how you even maybe you were introduced or thought about aviation. So how were you first introduced into the aviation world? And when you were like, ah, oh, this is maybe something I want to do. I'm assuming maybe it happened in the college time frame while you were in the Navy ROTC. Yeah. I mean, I'll even speak uh, prior childhood. Like I said, with parents living in different States, I was flying by myself at a, like an incredibly young age. Uh-huh. Uh, and I don't think I'm inaccurate by saying I was flying by myself at like four or five years old. Oh, wow. Uh, so, and I, my frequent flyer miles were incredible. So it's like flying for me was never something that was abstract mm-hmm. or really scary. Um, and then in college, um, with Naval ROTC, they send you on various, um, they're, they're like training sessions, summer sessions, exposure sessions. Um, and there's one called Cortramid for all, uh, guys that are in ROTC and then Protramid for guys who go to the Academy and it kind of exposes you to each of the communities. One being aviation, the surface community and driving ships, sub community, and then the Marine Corps. Um, so I think that that was one of the biggest formative times. I was like, man, this is really cool. I, I could definitely see being in this community and that changed my opinion a lot. And, um, it's funny, the squadron that I'm in now was actually the squadron that I got like um, what they call MIDI flights back in when you're midshipman. That was like the first squadron that flew me around in helos and I was like, and this is this is pretty cool. So that's kinda when you when you when you when you got it, you're like, Man, I want this is this is it. This is what I wanna do. Yeah, I was like, This is this is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Does anybody get to go um do they do those types of flights on like uh like the jets and, and everything, or is it just helos? Yeah, so I, you know, very few and far in between. I've seen a lot of those kind of flights with, um, more so with like the T forty five, which is the advanced jet trainer. Yeah, okay. Uh, I had a buddy in college that had opportunities to go down to Meridian, Mississippi, which is where one of the uh, advanced jet uh, training bases is, and they got to um, fly backseat, and we're given a little bit of stick time. And then for me, 
it was the T34 uh, turbo turbo mentor that I got to ride with. And I remember specifically it was, it was a Marine Corps major who I think was intentionally trying to make me sick. Uh, <laughs> but it, yeah, it was, that was the, I remember that was uh, before I think I was used to that kind of dynamic flying. Um, and so I was definitely white knuckled. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. So, and it's kind of cool. I've had a great mix of aviation careers represented so far on uh, the show, but kind of like I mentioned in the intro, you're my first military uh, pilot that's been uh, been on the show. So as an aviation officer, you know, what have been so far some of those like biggest lessons, you know, whether you consider it like a life lesson or an aviation based lesson that you've that you've learned, maybe maybe even happened during training, but that you still hold really close to you today. Yeah, I think there's there's two that um, really help, and it's probably applicable to all careers. But like we were talking about prior to the show, your training never stops. You're always learning. You're always trying to get to that next wicket. And so it's important to remember and take a second, and I always try to do this, like every flight to try to appreciate where you are and to enjoy the flight, even if it's a stressful flight, um, and realize that you're never going to get to a point and be like, once I reach this wicket, then I'll start enjoying doing this. So you you just kind of have to take that time out and kind of remind yourself where you are. And I I guess the opportunities that have been afforded to you and to appreciate those, I think that's one. And then, um, the other is regardless of how hard, you know, an instructor, a flight studying this, whatever your, your crux is, I think having a positive attitude will carry you so far mm-hmm. and you, you see guys that are incredible sticks you know just through the the, the training but the terrible terrible attitudes that didn't make it through and then you have guys that work their ass off you know not great pilots great guys have great attitudes always want to come in learning and you're given so much more leeway when you come in at like that and i think those are the two biggest things that i always try to like to maintain and remember and to, to always have a positive attitude every day and, you know, be helpful and be a team player, really. Yeah, um, I mean, the positive attitude piece, I mean, that's, I try to, anytime somebody asks me, you know, how do you, how do you, you know, when you're flying, how do you do what you do? And it really is that positive attitude piece because even if you have a bad day, I mean, you're not having the worst day. Somebody else is having a w- yeah. way bad day. Fly. Exactly, yeah. But even for you as a helicopter pilot, I yeah. mean, you even have to look at, based purely based on science, like every time I get to fly in a helicopter, I just appreciate for what the machine can do for me. And I have a lot of respect. Yeah, and, it's like magic. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's magic. And it's just not supposed to do that. So the fact that, you know, people like you get to do this on a daily basis as a career, I mean, that's like that positive attitude. Like, man, I get to do this, even though this aircraft is not supposed to be doing what it's doing. (laughs) Oh no. I I think that's something that, um, people, like coworkers, you know, that you talk to and you're like, man, this is so crappy. And I think one of the sayings is a bitch and sailor is a happy sailor. Yeah. Um, but we always like realize, man, this sucks. This sucks. At least we're not a SWO. Like, yeah. <laughs> and no offense to any SWOs out there that are listening to this, but you know, like hearing some of the, the stories of what those guys deal with, I think 
you just kind of take things for granted and you kind of have to put the big picture in at some points and realize that you're, like I said, really blessed to be where you are. Mm -hmm. So one question that I, uh, that I really want to ask before you, we get, uh, we kind of pivot into the Navy career and how everything, you know, has happened so far in your career is you're married, correct? Yes. And I mean, which for a lot of people, I know that was something, you know, for even some of my friends, uh, who are in the service who are now, you know, married as well. That's, that's a big piece of what, you know, of your guys's life is how do you balance being married and having, you know, a naval aviation I'll career? So yeah. What would you family, say about that? I think family life is so important. You have to balance because they say like, and I think that's applicable really for, you know, when deployments and stuff come around, if you have children, if you have spouses and I've seen pretty much everything, you have guys that are prior enlisted to come in and have four kids. And not only do they, you know, they're studying their ass off to get through whatever uh, phase of flight training or, you know, advancing the career that they're doing. And then not only that, but they've got to maintain an entire family life at home. So I think having the support from your family um, is a huge thing and keeping the, the family work life balance, I think is a constant battle mm-hmm. um, because when things are not okay at home, it's going to carry into work. Um, and I think that's, that's probably applicable to all careers. But uh, I think that, you know, I think that having a family really can help, you know, push you through some of those rough days when you really need support. Um, and you're like, man, I just, you know, today was a terrible flight, you know, <laughs> to keep yourself like out of the mind of the gutter. Like having that, not only that, but just like having friends too, I think, and having a good, surrounding yourself with the right people is, is always important. Mm-hmm. Which and we're going to touch here here in the next section, but I want to pivot now to your your Navy career and how how it all started and how it's gotten to where it is now. Um, so really, the first question I want to ask is, what prompted you to go uh, the Navy route versus the other services that may have offered uh, ROTC programs as well? Yeah, I mean, it really was never even a choice to be honest. I I enjoyed swimming, enjoyed being in the water, and I think that that had it an influence on me and originally in college I was interested in maybe possibly pursuing trying to go to the SEALs um you know I I think that it's always been Navy for me and that's uh that's just the way it is my grandfather was Army and I've got buddies that are in each of the branches um but I think that this you know the Navy was just the service that you know I, I always had you know my grandmother was always I think just Growing up, hearing family members talk about different services and stuff, maybe some of the outside, um, I, outside connotations for each of the services maybe carried into my selection over over what I wanted to do. So before we get into the process of kind of how you've gotten now to where you are, what is the aircraft that you're currently flying in the Navy? Yeah, it's the uh, MH-60 Sierra, um, also known as the Nighthawk. Um, and it is essentially a, a, an army Lima with a folding tail and foldable head, um, that we also have, we can put external weapons arms on to carry a hellfire 20 mil Ford fixed or guided or unguided rockets. How many, how many, uh, crew members do you usually fly with? Um, typically you have uh, a hack helicopter aircraft commander. Uh, a co-pilot, uh, he may also be a hack, but um, possibly 2P or just PQM. Or um, And then in addition to that, you also have your crew chief, 
um, in the back. Um, so air crew and for us, it's, uh, AWS's, um, and all those guys are rescue swimmers as well. And typically we fly with two air crew in the back. Two air crew. Okay. Once the hoist operator, the other being the rescue swimmer. Okay. So, and kind of the, the meat of what I wanted to talk about today, and I think where you can bring so much value to all the listeners is for people who really don't know, uh, what it takes to become a naval aviator. Let's kind of, you know, hear about how that process works and kind of what are all the steps leading up to getting your, your wings, uh, your wings of gold. So can you kind of walk our listeners through, you know, basically from zero, maybe from your ROTC career to where you are now, what was that process like and how did it go? So how the process goes is, uh, there's several entry routes into becoming an officer and to be, um, a pilot or naval aviator or NFO, um, essentially, you know, backseater goose from Top Gun, you have to be an officer. Um, it's, it's different in the Army. They have cheap warrants and stuff that fly. Uh, but for the Navy, it's all officers. So what you have to start out with is you have to find your commissioning source, whether it be OCS, and you have to have a four-year college degree, ROTC, or one of the service academies. Um, being the Naval Academy or you, you name it. Um, and so the uh, once you do that, you kind of get to where the end of your senior year, um, for me, because I'll speak to Rossi and I can kind of touch base on some of the others, the end of your senior year, um, you take the aviation service test battery like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. And, and um, depending on your aptitude, um and then needs the Navy at that point, they say, hey, this guy may or may not be a good fit. Um, there's a couple of other uh, factors for people at the academy. Like, they, you know, they have a essentially a, a flying team and stuff like that. So, I mean, there's things that help you get in. And then obviously, like having family members that were pri- uh, prior naval aviators, possibly still active in the community, can also be a big influence when you write that package and say, I want to try to go to flight school to be a pilot or to be a foe. Um, so once you get in, I understand it is this almost basically a two year process till you, you know, kind of step out into the fleet. Could you kind of walk us through that process? Okay. So you, you're in, you've passed OCS, you've graduated from the Academy or you, uh, like you, you, you've graduated. Yeah, I'll uh, talk talk about kind of like, so I commissioned in 2015, uh, from the university of Memphis. And then, um, what happened uh, after that was, found out that, you know, there, obviously there's always people going through flight school and you can't send everyone at once that graduates Rossi. So they spaced those guys out and then you had the academy to on the same time frames. Um, so I was stashed in Memphis for six months. So in addition to like the average two years that you're speaking to, I had an additional six months prior to essentially sitting around and doing, you know, admin or basic secretarial work. Um, to help the unit, the Rossi unit in Memphis. And I think that there's a lot of people that have different, you know, some people do OHAR for recruiting at that point and, and various other little, um, you know, commands while they're temporary active duty before they start flight school. So once you start flight school, you show up. First thing you do is uh, down in Pensacola, which is gorgeous, by the way. Um, you show up and you see um, – get what the building number is, but you, you go into something called a pool. Uh, at that point, you, you're going through NAMI, the Naval Aviation Medical Institute, um, and that's where the pipeline stops for some. Um, 
that's where it's called getting the nammy whammy. Uh, they'll find out like your legs are too short and your arms are too long to fly anything. So you, you yeah, you know, you're not going to fly anything, or you've got this weird condition with your eyes that you're colorblind, this, that, or the other. Um, and hopefully they have found that prior to this because you would have had a flight physical prior. But there's a lot of guys that go through, and even they had a flight physical two years prior when they were still in college, to show up finally to start flight school, and they were going to be a pilot, and oh crap, your vision's not good enough anymore. You can either get out, or you could be an NFO. And because there's less, you know, as far as for those guys, there's vision, the vision is not as um, strict. Mm-hmm. And then from that, you, uh, you start uh, IFS, which is... Oh, I, I'm forgetting what IFS, but essentially you fly a Piper or a Cessna um, to make sure that you are adept to flying at all. Um, obviously, those things fly pretty slow and pretty basic. It's just to kind of show like, hey, this guy can handle being in the air. And the pilots and NFOs are the same pipeline with that. I want to say it's like 12 flights, maybe each an hour long, and then you solo on the 13th. And once you finish that, then you roll over. Um, back to another waiting pool, waiting to start API. API being aviation, preliminary indoctrination, I think if it's correct. And that that's four weeks of academics, essentially, you know, flying for dummies and two weeks of survival training. Um, that's where after you finish the academics, you have your flight suit Friday, finally get your, uh, your flight suit. And um, then you go off to your, your primary training. And so I'll speak to API just a little bit. I think that's also where you have a lot of guys that get a trident. Um, cause it sucks. Cause there's like, there's a test every Tuesday, every Thursday, um, and multiple tests and it's weather, uh, aerodynamics, um, federal, uh, rules, regulations, um, engines, uh, all, all the stuff that you need to have a basic understanding for before actually going to fly in the aircraft. And uh, the tests can suck, and depending on your work ethic or study or the people you surround yourself with, you know, I think one of the big things about flight school is you realize it's kind of like college extended, Mm -hmm. and guys can sometimes get caught up in a partying too much and hanging out on the beach and spending too much time at Palafox or Seville, (laughs) which is like the the big uh, bar down there that everyone goes to, Um, and if you do that and you don't study enough, then you come back and bite you in the butt. And uh, one of the, the, like I said, or, you know, I don't know if I've said on a segment so far, but depending on needs of the Navy, the bar essentially raises or lowers because they need to expand the pool or tighten the pool. Um, when the bar is low, the test scores can be lower. When the bar is high, the test scores have to be higher. So when I went through, um, I think it was a medium, medium or so, you, you had to have an 80 on every test. Oh, wow. Or you failed it. That was anything less than an 80 was failing. Uh, um, and if you failed two more tests or you failed eight tests, I mean, that, and you didn't pass it again, then you, you were taken out of your API class, rolled back to the next one. You didn't pass it with that one, then you're, you're done. And so um, that's how API works. And then once you finish those four weeks of academics, um, which looking back on now is a joke, but at the time it seemed like it was grueling work. <laughs> um, then you go to your flight suit Friday, um, get your flight suit, party with your friends, and then you start survival training. So basic land survival and then water survival, swimming those miles in the flight suit, boots and gear and stuff. I think jump, you know, do, uh, the various things that you do just to make sure that you have a basic survival, you know, if you go down in the water. Um, 
And then after you finish those two weeks, you go off to primary. Uh, primary either being in Corpus Christi, Texas, or up at uh, Whiting um, in Milton, Florida, not, you know, probably 30 minutes away from downtown Pensacola. Um, and that's where you got to fly the T6. Um, Bravo as a pilot and the T6 Alpha as an NFO. And you stay, the NFO has had it lucky because they got to stay at NAS Pensacola, which is so beautiful. Didn't have to move and <laughs> adjust. So they, they stay and they fly the T6 Alpha there. Um, and as you go through, you know, primary, as, as I'm sure it is with the civilian world too, but the flight schedule comes out the day before and you find out what events you're on. You have a syllabus that you have to meet all these wickets. Uh, you go through basic ground school. You start contacts, which is essentially this is how you fly the aircraft. You do instrument training. In primary, you do aerobatic and then form training as well. Um, because everyone in primary, they're essentially trying to see, are you good enough to be a single seat jet guy? Um, and that's what they're, the bar is at in either you make it or you don't. Um, and that kind of reflects in your, your standard score when you get out, which any ranges anywhere from, I think 30 to 80, 80 being perfect, 30 being you barely scrape through, maybe it's 35. I can't remember. Um, but as you go through the flight, depending on your week to week schedule for primary, um, you, you may fly twice, you may fly three times, you may fly every single day. Uh, it's dependent on maintenance, weather, um, and then availability of instructors. Um, so you kind of always have to stay ready and stay in the NASOPs, which is like your Bible for your aircraft. Make sure that I think the biggest thing that people struggle with that don't have any prior flight experience in primary is staying ahead of the aircraft because it's it cruises at 240, so it's quick. And then radio comms and then all the procedures, checklists, emergency procedures, limits, you know, operating procedures that you have to maintain. It's all this in and then course rules on top of that that you have to memorize and they're testing on all of those things all the time, trying to trip you up. Um, and so it can it can get pretty tough at times and definitely <laughs> definitely pretty sweaty flights when you're stressing out regardless of how cold it is. Um, but then you finish uh, primary and depending on how you score against the last, I want to say it's last hundred student. I I, it, I can't remember exactly, but it's it's based it's a score that's based on how you break out against the last ever how many students that just finished prior to you, and you're great on on each maneuver on each event. I think it's like one through five, five being outstanding, and then there's like a baseline in the middle. It's called MIF. Um, so if MIF is four and you're getting five on all your maneuvers, you're doing hot and shit hot. But if MIF is four and you're getting three in all the maneuvers, you're in trouble because uh, you can't make MIF on these things. So those change depending on how far along you're on the syllabus um, and then depending on what phase of flight you're in. And then you have check rides along the way that they're tougher on you and just like you would in, in the civilian world. Um, I think the biggest thing is, is they <laughs> – and they've gotten really good. I had pretty much – I had great instructors all the way through. Uh, I think there's maybe one or two times when I rubbed a guy wrong and I felt like I maybe justly or unjustly at the time was given poor grades. But I think that a lot of – you know, they, they really focus on that um, now and make sure the instructors are top-notch guys and that they kind of, you know, they're good guys to you. But, again, once you finish primary, then you select. You put in your preference sheet for what you want to go. Um for Navy, because uh, we go through with Marines and Coast Guard as well. Um, but for 
Navy. Uh, that includes now tilt rotor, so MV-22s, um, Hilo, which could encompass your Sierra, what I fly, Romeos, or 53s, the big irons. Um, and then you have jets, uh, so F-35, F-18, um, and then you have um, big wing. So you have E-6B, P-8, and then you also have uh, E-2C-2. C-2 is now transitioning. Most of the guys are transitioning to the MV-22. But the, the E-2 being that, you know, the, the radar dome on top that still traps on a carrier. Um, and uh, so from there, that's where everyone kind of goes their separate ways. So if you go Jets, if you go to Kingsville, Texas, South of Meridian, or uh, – sorry, not South of Meridian, but South of Corpus, and Meridian, and Mississippi – um, and then they do their advanced training course, uh, which depending on, again, availability and on jets and, you know, they had some issues with the T-45, uh, with the Oval Bogs a couple years ago, um, that slowed down training or actually halted it. And so the, the average training I think is 18 months, but I, I know guys that push way beyond that, that are just now getting wings and started flight school at the same time as me. Um, and then you have your helos. Uh, you're, you stay at Whiting, you go to Southfield, uh, and you fly the TH-57, which is the oldest, <laughs> like it's oldest. For, yeah. I, you, you talk to guys that are captains and stuff and you probably flew the same 57 that they flew their first helicopter solo in. They're um, old man. They're real old Dell yeah, aircraft. Real old. <laughs> uh, I know that everyone's bitching and wanting to get those replaced and I think that's on the horizon. Um, so we'll see when that actually does happen. Yeah, no, they're, um, the uh it's coming out right now um the, the it's the navy trainer program um let's see it's the the companies that are in it are bell uh airbus leonardo. and leonardo yep yeah so every fleet fly in that they have occasionally will they fly the various aircraft in well specifically i'll talk to helicopters because it was in that advanced training but like when they have a fleet fly in they're flying the cobras the hueys the romeos sierras 53s and try to give you an idea of what the fleet is like. You can talk to the various uh, communities and figure out, hey, man, this this is probably what I want to put first. So this is the best fit for me. And always at those, you have the prospective new advanced helicopters that they'll fly around the wing uh, personnel um, and, you know, essentially the guys who are possibly putting in and making the decision on what aircrafts that they're going to pick. Um, at, at, at that You can spend a whole hour talking just about that. <laughs> So we're trying to di- divert. But then uh, then you have uh, big wing training, VA guys go down to the T-44, learn how to fly multi-engine, you know, race the dead, that kind of stuff. Um, and then they'll go to – after you finish advanced, then you put on your wings. Um, this is for pilot. Um, and then you end up rolling to the fleet. You find out kind of where your FRS is going to be and then what your ultimate aircraft and duty station is. And that's not always the same. For each pipeline, because some guys find out where their FRS is, but don't know where they're going to go after that. But for my community, they tell you whether you're going east, west, or Japan. Um, and then you, you, you kind of figure out where you're going from that point. Um, so, And then for NFOs, NFOs are the same thing. They do a primary. At the end of the primary, um, their grades depend whether or not they get backseater for uh, E-18s or F-18s or whether they go big wings, so like E-2 um, or uh, P-8. Uh, and so I've got 
one of my close friends is an E2 NFO, and then uh, one of my close friends is an E18 guy up in uh, Woody. And I know that they both enjoy their you know, their, their individual careers. But uh, um, then after that, you roll to the FRS, and that's the same for NFOs and pilots alike. Um, and at that point, that's the first time you train with your whole crew. So not only when I'm, you know, first started learning how to fly, the Sierra was, um, was I learning, but you know, there's also great cars going on in the back for perspective, uh, air crew. And they also get, they get their wings of gold at the end of FRS. Um, that's like the first time flying for them. Um, but they had just finished rescue swimmer school showed up and, now are going through a similar, uh, similar syllabus, um, less focused on flying procedures and EPs and limits, but more so what they can affect from the back and then kind of SAR for them. And so for the FRS, for Sierras, you kind of focus again, you go through contacts, basically learn how to fly the or FAMs. Um, and then the, the other thing I forgot to mention, um, all of these phases, you go through a ground school portion, you go to SIMS, once you do you know, however many silver sim events there are, then you roll to the aircraft. So you never, it's never like, all right, today you're learning how to fly forms. I know you've you know, seen anything about this. You've already gone through ground school class on how to do it, what you should know. You've studied this, you've taken a test, then you've gone and done it in the sim a couple of times. Uh, maybe you're proficient, maybe you're not, depending on how realistic the sim can emulate what the phase of flight is. And then you do your actual flights. And those, that's, you know, the, the flights are carry a lot more weight. Um, grading wise, uh, it's the same for the FRS. All of these, you, you learn how basic systems, ground school, learn the aircraft, learn how to fly the aircraft basically, and then move on and progress. Um, and then, so for us, contacts, fans, then you go on into SAR, nice instruments. Um, and one of the things that's nice about naval aviation is coming out of, and I know this is probably one of your questions, but you get, for me, I have a fixed wing uh, commercial pilot. Uh, rotary wing commercial pilot as well as my instrument rating and then you know you can go back and pursue other ones in your own time like multi-engine or i know that i've got buddies that fly p8s now that um they have everything you need to essentially walk into the airlines as well as a type rating in 737s so you get a type rating and then um you walk away with those where whereas like i think and maybe I don't want to speak incorrectly this, but I think Army they, they don't focus on getting an instrument rating because it's table of the clouds pretty much because it's most of the guys. Um, but I think that's one thing that's nice because it helps you transition afterwards if you want to go private, want to go fly for EMS, or if you want to go and try to do you know for me a rotary transition program the airlines. Um, and then from your FRS, you roll to your first fleet squadron tour, uh, which is where I just showed up, uh, brand new PQM as a know anything at all even though i've been in for four years <laughs> i started to get all your basic tactical qualifications try to working towards that 2p and then hack second pilot um and then hack helicopter aircraft commander meaning you sign for the aircraft yourself take the crew out yourself um and i've had my last xo put it to me this way it's like you are a sucking chest wound to the navy <laughs> <laughs> until you put on hack yeah. so you want to hack as quick as possible because that's when your service back to the community starts becoming useful um and you can start knocking out great cards and helping other people get great cards and helping other people get quals so everyone is always pushing towards hack is probably the biggest for helicopter and that's the same across sierras romeos 53s um and then for us your various levels of tactical level you know training you know 
whether you're able to lead a form flight um, and sign for your aircraft and lead a form flight, you know, doing gun patterns or whatever, that's you're you're always working to this next um, levels of qualifications. But that's where I am now, and then I can speak from what I know about the future um, and from what I know about squadron life. Um, but hopefully, that was kind of encompassing of what you can see through. Yes. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that was a, that was an awesome process. And I mean, that was a lot more than, I mean, I personally knew as well, but I think one thing we didn't touch on, and I know that it, it's kind of a requirement, but as a Naval aviator, because of the amount of training that you guys have to go through, there are some service requirements that you guys are required yeah. to hold years. Why? Right. Yeah. So after wings, it's uh, eight years <laughs> for so, pilots. So it's almost 10, 10 years then. Pretty yeah. Much? I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, I, I put on wings at three years, so I'll be at 11 years. Oh, wow. Out, um, which puts you at that, like, that transition point to, hey, do I want to stay Navy? If you can, if you're not forced out, if you if you can pick up DH and make up for, uh, am I going to stay in and try to do 20 or, hey, are the airlines calling? Am I trying to go to fly for American or FedEx or who, you know, whatever name you are, EMS, or just what opportunities at that point are available? Mm-hmm. The one thing I think what is so fascinating about kind of what it takes to become a naval aviator is not only are there multiple ways that you can go through it, you know, it's not just one kind of like getting into college. It's you, you apply. That's the only way you can get it. Well, I take that back unless your parents paid $500,000, then you can go to USC. <laughs> uh, but jokes aside, then you have B, you know, kind of, I feel, and I don't know if you felt the same way, you know, in college is I feel a lot of folks, that they kind of put getting an aviator spot on this like pedestal that it's almost like getting into Harvard or just getting in, in officer positions like getting into Harvard. But it's really, really not. Um, yeah, I think there's a lot of mysticism about it and because it's unknown, the, the pipeline is unknown. I think I always try to take time and explain it. I've got little brothers that, you know, are in college and trying to decide what they're going to do with the rest of their lives and, you know, their friends and stuff. I always try to like, Hey man, this is not this is not impossible. It's a great career, yep. and I always try to explain that to them. And because I, th- I think a lot of people don't realize it's an option. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that this community, while it there are the tough days and the sucky days, I mean, this is it's an awesome community to be part of. And for you guys, it's not though it is about your educational aptitude. It's more, I think, a lot of what you guys go through really strikes your mental aptitude a lot more. I mean, the educational stuff is pretty, I mean, it's, it hasn't changed in years, but it's how you process things mentally is what makes you a successful naval aviator. Yeah. I think that the best way I, I've had it explained to me is there was an 04, a, a jet guy that was telling me, he's like, look, I can teach a monkey how to fly. It may take me, you know, 400 hours to get it to work and land, but the Navy just doesn't have that kind of money yeah. to everyone through. And so you have this many flights to learn how to do this. Either you make it or you don't. And and it's, it's more of a time versus money thing. The Navy can't invest all this time and money if you know some guys are picking up in three flights and it takes some flights. Yep. So I think that's really what it is. is how how much effort and time can you put in? And I've seen it's where guys work super super hard. It's just not for them. Um, and then you see the guys that don't even have to work hard and they're lazy and that. I think it's 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 easily noticeable by your superiors, um, and they haven't made it through because they realize, hey, again, like you got to be a team player and you have to work hard. And um, I think that's 
that's the biggest thing. And I think that's probably, probably you know, if you can succeed in this career, you can probably succeed in, in a lot of careers. Mm-hmm. It taught me how to study and how to learn um, and what to focus on in time management. And uh, that's really the biggest thing. And, and so now that you're you're kind of into the fleet and everything, and I know we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but I know that there's a friendly rivalry between the segments of pilots, and we won't go too much into it because we don't want to rub anybody the wrong way. But give kind of the audience kind of the the funny you know piece behind kind of the rivalry between everybody inside the Navy. Yeah, so you have like the Hilo Brolo, or like, like Helos are bros and like laid back and like or lazy or you know like maybe didn't make jet grades, and then you have like the jet guys that think they're better than everybody else, and then. Um, you have like, I'll say like the E6B community. It's like, oh, those guys are weird. <laughs> and then you got P8 guys that are like, they're living the life, um, because they don't have to land on a boat or stay on a boat and they get to stay in all the different. So everyone holds a little angst towards them, especially when they bitch about their job. <laughs> so like, uh, no, I, I, I would say that every every community has their struggles, their ups and their downs. And I think that depending on your personality, you may fit into one community better than the other. But it's 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 kind of like inter service rivalry. Army guys always give Navy guys a hard time, and Jet guys will always give Hilo guys a hard time. It's of just, course, it's, just, it's the yeah. nature of the beast. Yeah. <laughs> um, so speaking of of Hilo's, do you, I don't even know if you have this opportunity, but do you see yourself moving into a new aircraft, or are you pretty much you know with your aircraft till the end now? So, I mean, you can put in um, lateral transition packets depending on needs of the Navy again. Everything is about needs of the Navy. Um, like, I, like I told you before, I mean, you can. I've seen Hilo guys because the F-18 community is having some retention issues for pilots. There's 60 guys after the first fleet tour that are now going back to advance for jets and retreading to go F-18. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, the MV-22 community just came online. And they're needing people, so they're taking people from the C2 community, which is their community, um, taking them to MV22, and they're also taking some 60 guys, less than the 60 guys. But, you know, I, I think that depending, like, if, you know, PAs needed guys, if, you know, the airlines had a big push and a lot of PA guys left and, and they needed those guys to fill those spots, they would pull them from other communities if other communities had excess. Um, so you, you're... I think it's like if you love your community, you can stay in your community, but then there's also opportunities if you're wanting to go to a different aircraft. Um, yeah, so it's, and it's, there's so many different ways, and that's like, there's so many different rabbit holes you can go down through that that it's, it's hard. Then you have guys that are Navy or Marine Corps guys that are now Navy and they switch services to maintain flying this or doing that. It's, it's, and then you have, you know, inner service transition. So I've got like, a buddy who was a 60 guy in the Navy and now he's, he's still Navy, but he's flying paybox with the air force. So it's like, there's, it's kind of endless yeah. that, you know, um, but what you don't see is you don't see jet guys going to fly helos. <laughs> so, <laughs> they gave, they gave you so much crap that they don't want to take a hit on their ego like that. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like they, those guys, once they, once you go jet, you're probably not going anything else yeah. because the Navy is trying to keep you there. And um, the other thing you can, if you want to know which communities are hurting, is you go to the aviation retention bonus 
Uh, right when that you know that end of the service agreements up, yep. the eight years is up, and you see which communities are hurting the most. Right now, it's fifty three guys and Jack guys. They get like I don't know, one hundred eighty five thousand over three years or something like that. Versus us, I can't remember. <laughs> It's a joke. It's like fifty thousand something compared. So, so for you, you know, when when you're on duty, what's a normal schedule like for you as a naval aviator? Well, as, and this is the funniest thing is there's not a normal schedule. Um, you have the flight schedule, especially up to this point. I'll speak speak to FRS and then kind of like fleet service. Like, there's a difference. Is FRS up until the F, like the point you join your first actual squadron, you have a flight schedule that comes out depending on how efficient the office is between, I don't know, noon to possibly as late as six or seven o'clock at night and find out what you're flying the next day. You may have a flight early in the morning. And after you're done for that, you go home and study, go do what you want to do. Um, and then, but in the fleet, uh, you have your, your flights. And then in addition to that, you also have ground jobs. So you can be, you know, a, a legal officer, or you could be in charge of air crew, you know, the air crew divo, or you could be the PR divo, or you, what name you, all the jobs that we had to fill for a squadron to maintain. And so not only are you flying, but hey, from eight to five, you're expected to be there. You're not flying, you're doing your ground job. Um, and so <laughs> it's always a joke when you finish the FRS, they say your hourly rate goes way down. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes in the FRS, bad weather or whatever, you find yourself be like, man, I haven't been scheduled in three days. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting paid all this money to sit around. Um, and then they get it back. Uh, <laughs> they get that money back. Yeah. But uh, uh, that's that's kind of starting your fleet tour with deployments and, um, you know, then just doing your ground job. So – for people out there that may be thinking, you know, especially young folks, whether they're in high school or they're going through college, you know, if there's young aviators out there thinking about taking that step into military flying, what is some advice that you would give to them before they think about even, you know, signing up, you know, signing the papers with a recruiter? Well, um, I, I think we talked about this before. I think it's important that you reach out and try to find someone who's either retired from this community or that's active in this community. And I know, and I'll speak for myself too, if anyone ever reaches out to me and wants to know specific questions, I'd love to answer those questions. And I, I'm pretty sure everyone I've ever met in this community loves to do the same. Um, you need to find someone that's in the community because people outside the community give really kind of terrible information about how to get in, what to do. But um, basic thing is, is you got to make good grades. So you got to get that good college degree. Um, that's your first stop, your first start. Then too, you got to find your commissioning source. How are you going to get started? I know OCS can sometimes take a year to even get into. So if you're thinking about, Hey, this is something I want to do, start that process early. Um, and then you, you want to make sure like for me, uh, one of the things I found out, from NAMI, uh, we talked about earlier, the Navy, Navy Able Aviation Military Institute, uh, Medical Institute, is that my eyesight was right on the cusp. I was 20-30 in my right eye and 20 or 20-15 in my left eye. And if I went any less than 20-30 in my right eye, then I was going to be not available to go to pilot. So one of the things I did was um, I put in a request to stay within ROPC to, to get LASIK in my right eye. I did that privately. And then when I went to put in my package for aviation, I said, you know, I've wanted to do this so much that I even went and got laser skimmer right out to make sure that I'm good to fly. Um, so I, there's things that are 
you can't you can't fly if you're colorblind. You can't fly if your vision is just terrible. I mean, you could be an NFO, but like to be a pilot, you, they're they're pretty strict. There's certain cutoffs and like no goes. And but the other thing too is just like as you're in high school and college, don't do something stupid that's yep. going to stop you from getting into the Navy. I think that's good for all careers too. Don't go get a DUI. Um, stay away from drugs. Um, you know, just be ideal citizen. Um, so that there's nothing that's going to hold you up yeah. as you, um, I think that's the main thing. Yeah. And, and I mean, I think for the audience, because I had firsthand experience with it, that, you know, what you just said about don't do anything stupid. I mean, it's, it's super important. Cause I had a very, very close friend to me who he was a blast. He's my best friend in college, but he did had two very serious things on his record. Um, that unfortunately the Navy said, you can't commission as an officer because you have these on your record, but you can go enlist for a few years, you know, basically prove your worth and then we'll rethink it, you know, after that process. Uh, yeah. And, and so that's I've the route he took. That. And I, I would say like, if, if your ultimate goal is to become a naval aviator and you're thinking you're going to list, that may be a ploy from a recruiter. Yeah. Like that's no offense to those guys, but like there are certain things, if you, if you have a DUI, you're not going to be a pilot. Like, and even in flight school or up to this point, it, it's called an ARI, any alcohol-related incident. I saw a dude that was attrited because he was drunk and pulled a fire alarm at a bar. And because he was drunk and did something stupid. Or I, I've had guys that got into a fight drunk because they had an altercation in public. Essentially what it comes down to is if you show the Navy that you use poor judgment in your personal life, they're not going to give you the keys to an aircraft. Yeah. So um, that's really what it comes down to. And that sounds more strict. I mean, the Navy, we have, we have tons of fun. And I think what, uh, one of the big things is like, you know, for, you know, kind of being very brotherly and sisterly and um, partying and, you know, doing things together as a squadron. And that is so true, but <laughs> you don't want to be that asshole. You got to know where your limit is. Yep. And everyone knows that guy, you can go to a party and have fun and like enjoy and partake. But then, don't be the guy that's streaking down the street and gets pulled over. No. It's there's a line and yeah. you know, everyone knows where that is. All right. So, I mean, we just got an incredible amount of information. I mean, you know, how this whole process went from you from starting school to doing, you know, ROTC or ROTC and then commissioning, going through pilot training and how you now into the fleet where you are. Um, but I think what's so cool about you too is you kind of, you have a side, you know, a little side business that I've enjoyed following. I think it's really cool. It's really creative. Um, and I think there's, it's really important, especially in your guys' community. So let's talk about steel helmet designs. I mean, this is, this is really cool what you're doing um, out there. And I think one thing I love about just Navy aviation in general is not just from the patches, uh, but just the designs that you, you're allowed to, to put on your helmet. I mean, they're very fun, cra uh, crazy and creative. Cause you just, I don't know. There's something about the Navy community that everybody's just a kind of a crazy creative bunch. It's such a different community. Uh, and, yeah, I <laughs> and that's so true. And it's not just the art that's displayed in, in patches, but like, I mean, go back and look at, you know, what it, back in world war two, you know, bomber jackets, you know, what was, you know, plain art that was on nose art and stuff. So it's kind of like, it's a military aviation thing. It's just like, and I think really where it comes from is, especially the guys back in the day, like the bomber, bomber pilots during World War II, it's like, you have to have some kind of almost like emotional attachment to this machine. It's like, even when, especially those guys that are yeah. not, you know, 
probably going to come back. It's like, what, what makes this machine lucky for you? Like, and it's, uh, and I do like that it's expressive. And I think d- depending on your command and what the commands, um, what they're, what they put out about what they allow in their helmets, you can see guys that, you know, a lot of them will display where they went to school or like, yeah, if you have prior enlisted, sometimes they'll put their like uh, prior enlisted, you know, whether it's pins or badges or various things. Um, but uh, and then you have I appreciate probably the most is when an entire squadron has a design that's yep. like, oh, that's that is someone from VFA 101 or that's someone from agency five or, you know, what you know, whatever, whatever your squadron is. And that's one of the cool things that I enjoy. And so I, I always enjoyed art and various things. And, um, I think when, when I was in FRS that you saw various things on helmets and stuff and versus just a white helmet, (laughs) a white reflective helmet, um, CNAF, uh, or 3710.7, which is one of our, uh, regulating publications says you can't have more than 30 square inches, uh, of light reflective, uh, light colored reflective tape on your helmet, which it's really uh, interpretation can change. And the guys who really handle this stuff are PRs or parachute riggers. Um, and those guys can be really big sticklers about it, or they can be really lax. And I think that, you know, you'll kind of see the differences and depending on the command climate that you're in, you'll see different squadrons rocking a lot of stuff on their helmet or rocking nothing. Um, and so, but I think in general as a community, with the patches, everyone loves swag. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you like to represent the squadron you're from and it's kind of a pride thing. And it's kind of like, if you're not prideful about the squadron that you're in, it's, it's probably because you're not putting enough effort into your own squadron, you know? Um, so I think that that's something that everyone likes. Everyone likes to show where they're from, what they've done, and then what squadron they're in. So, and you, I get some crazy requests sometimes from, you know, funny stories. Um, that are sometimes related to call signs or, or various other things. But then uh, a lot, you know, a lot of it's individual. And I would say probably one of the biggest customers I have is guys from the academy, various sports teams from the academy. Um, I will say there are some connotations about academy guys, like, oh, they're douchebags, but you will not find a group that, you know, is more prideful about where they've come from yep. and, you know, how hard they worked when they were in college. Um, and so I think guys give them shit about that. But, at the same time, like they all recognize each other and like the respect is almost instant. So you, you can appreciate that regardless if you don't like guys from the Academy. Um, so no, I think that that's something you see a lot. You see a lot of instars, uh, you see, and then various squadron designs and then what's the history of that squadron, you know, and how does that transfer to something on your helmet? So, um, I have kind of, you know, I think there, there's, it started out very small and it's just like, yeah, man, I'll make you that. Like it's, you no, know, I was cutting them by hand. <clears throat> and I started getting like whole squadrons that are like, yeah, I need 150 of this. And I'm like, oh, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do that. I'm one person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I've got a job, but full time, this, this is not my day job. Um, and so I had to find a supplier, someone, you know, who's supportive of the military and, uh, you know, they, they can't handle those big big jobs for me for, you know, when an entire squadron gets a design that everybody's going to rock. And those are the coolest. I think that in my opinion, those are the coolest. Um, and especially when I see someone, um, and maybe I didn't even interface with them, but because their squadron 
you know, all got designs for me and I see their helmet. I'm like, I freaking did that. You know, that's, that's, that's cool too. I, I like bringing some of that, you know, I think it's camaraderie pride in your squadron and various things. So, um, yeah, I'll put the plug. I mean, it's the stuff I do. I'll tell you, Hey man, this is, yeah, this is not going to be nav air approved. Like you're probably, if you have a strict PR, it's going to take this shit off or yeah, you can do this and stay within regs. Um, and so you have, you know, it just depends on the community that you have. Um, but no, I enjoy doing that and I love doing it. And, uh, yeah, helmets and naval aviation, check it out. Um, so, and I mean, I know everybody kind of has their own crazy little request, but what has been the craziest design that you've done so far on a helmet? <laughs> um, yeah, there was a guy that requested a pinata shitting candy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't, I didn't get the the backstory. I wish I would have gotten it, but uh, or I, I think maybe he wasn't fully explaining. But uh, I think it's related to a call sign or something that happened in flight school. I, but yeah, I was like, I, I was like, this guy's fucking with me. <laughs> was he but, serious? Yeah, yeah, I know he, he's rocking on his helmet. Oh now, so. no, you really <laughs> made it for him. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, man. I, I'll do whatever you ask, and that's I. I will advise against, you know, if I'm like, man, yeah, that's going to push the balance. And that I, I've also gotten requests. It's like, I just don't want to be the guy that's providing you with that, putting on your helmet. Cause I'm like, I'm not trying to get in trouble. Um, but then, you know, I, I try to embrace someone's creativity and try to like create what they want to see. Because again, it's, it's about their pride and like what they're representing, not, not about what, what I am. And I know, you know, just looking through some of the designs that you've posted out there, I know some people like to integrate their call sign uh, onto their helmet. So, and I know a lot of people, they don't know how a call sign gets brought up. So before we move on to the next section, can you kind of give the background on how somebody like yourself gets a call sign? <laughs> I, I mean, there's there's some funny stuff behind it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, really, it's, it's dependent on the squadron you go to. Um I've heard people walk into a squadron and the CO meets them right away and their name reminds the CO of something. And it's like, from this known, you know, from this point forward, you will be known as such and such. And they're like, okay. <laughs> like, it has nothing to do with other guys that, you know, um, or, or gals that get along further, you know, without a call sign. Really, what it turns out to be is <laughs> what's something stupid that you did that everyone yeah. wants to do. Like, um, I don't want to blast people for and put anyone's call sign stories out there, but like there's, there's some pretty raunchy ones and some pretty funny ones. And, uh, it's just like, Oh my God, I can't believe like that's <laughs> like, he's rocking that. Like, and I think the, the harder you fight a call sign, the more it sticks. Yeah. To you. So, so what's your uh, call sign? Not, not been given one yet. Oh, okay. And staying under the radar currently. Okay. Uh, so it's no, we'll see. And what how squadrons typically do it is they have like mess meetings or yeah. your, your officer, um, your officer, you know, all the officers meet, all the pilots meet, and and if you have a you know jet squadron, the NFOs and pilots meet, and it's like they'll it's almost like a formalized funny version of like I saw such and such do this last week, and everyone will think it's freaking hilarious and be like, yeah, his call sign should be this, and then the CO and XO ultimately decide, yeah. you know, department heads. Yeah. That's, that's what his call sign is going to be. And so at that point you can fight it, probably going to stick worse. Um, or you can rock it. Um, and some guys get pretty lame ones and some guys get 
awesome ones. You know, it just it just depends on. <laughs> it really depends on what you did stupid, and then like what mood someone's in, or like it, it's. You know, it's it's all over the place. You're yeah. good, bad, and different. So I want to move quickly before we end the podcast. End the podcast. Get into just some. Just some life questions for you, and, and I think because you, you you're in the military, I think this is going to be a lot different than some of my other guests. Um, but if you could look forward, maybe ten years from now, where do you want your military aviation journey to be? Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that a lot of people in their first sea tour, it's like it's a big unknown. Yeah. Um, I think really it just depends on it's 10 years down the road, you know, when I'm having the option to get out or stay in, or, you know, maybe even earlier than that, like, is this still suiting my lifestyle? Is this still something that, you know, I'm really, and I think it comes down to enjoying the people around you and are you enjoying your job? And then what opportunities are there on the outside? So I, I hate to give you an ambiguous answer, but it's like, I just don't know. Yeah. Like it's, it's hard. It's hard to tell. I mean, I, I can see myself staying, you know, in the Navy and doing a multitude of different things, staying pilots, you know, there's so many different opportunities. It's, you know, it's, I think one of the coolest things you can do is be a CRXO of a squadron. So, you know, that's, that's, I think the golden path and what, you know, people want to see. And, um, but then there's so many other opportunities too that you can do. And then, yeah, I always thought, you know, and somewhere in the back of my mind, like, you know, being an airline pilot or, you know, (laughs) wouldn't be that bad <laughs> so so, so yeah. going through you know now that you've been through most all of the processes now that you're into the fleet you know maybe for people who may be listening and going through it i don't know what are some maybe some specific roadblocks that you would say young military aviators need to watch out for yeah um i mean i kind of touched on them earlier but like a lack of studying and then like you Suicide's a big thing in the military. So, like, uh, I recently in our community we've experienced a couple. Uh, and I think a lot of communities not, and it's not just aviation; it's all across the military. But I think it's it's a big. That, I mean, that's something you need to watch your mental health every yeah. single day. I think that's something that the military is kind of really leading. Maybe even the private sector is they're so focused on that. If you come in and you say, you know, I'm feeling this kind of way. We have chaplains, we have, you know, the command supports you wholeheartedly to get you through that and provides you with everything you need. And, you know, I think that's something that having known people that have experienced that and having experienced that myself, that I feel like it's, it's important to put a plug in about that. Um, so mental health is so important and maintaining that balance in your, your work, self-life, finding those things like they'll tell you, you study, 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 but go to the gym, play video games, go do something to let yeah, off steam. Let and I think that's, yeah, it's, it's something important for not just me, but you know, you and mental health in general. So you got, you've got to keep your, your mind right. Um, and then two, you got, you got to put the time and effort in, yeah. um, and you got to have a positive attitude. If you can do those, I think that that'll get you pretty much anywhere. So if you could send a message, you know, to yourself five years ago, basically before you started all of this, what would you tell the younger you? <sighs> Enjoy where you are. Quit wishing you were somewhere else, looking down the, the road. Enjoy where you are and soak it in. And I think that's that's probably, you know, something that I struggle with even today is you're always looking like, you know, down the road, you know, 
wanting to buy this new car, wanting to get this next qualification, wanting to go to college, wanting to do this, wanting to do this. And it's like you never realize how good you had it until you look back. Yep. So um, I think that's that's probably one of the biggest things. And so what's, you know, kind of, ta- you know, tail end of these, these questions, but what would you say your ultimate dream in life would be, whether that be aviation related or just life in general? Um, I would say ultimate dream in life is, um, to be a good father and to be able to look back and ultimately be happy with what, with where and what I did in life. And, um, yeah, I'm happy with where I am and I'm happy with what I've accomplished and always, you're always pushing, you know, for that next level of training or, you know, do, do, do something else and kind of push yourself mentally and physically and, um, you just, you don't want to die and realize, man, I wish I would have tried this or I yeah. wish I would have done this. And that's one thing I speaking of family and stuff, um, that hearing some of the, you know, older people, my family's saying, man, I really wish I would have tried to do this or this or this. And I think that's something that I just, I don't, I, I, I don't want that. Yeah. So I, I want to be able to say, I have at least tried to do everything that I wanted to do. It's that, it's like that, the, the moment of regret, you don't want any, you know, and any of that because then it just kind of clouts, clouts over you for the rest of your life. But man, that was that, I mean, that's a lot of incredible information that we just had. I mean, we went through the process of, I mean, what it takes to become a naval aviator. God, I, it's Sunday. I can't talk. I swear. Um, and then kind of, you know, not only are you doing all those things, but then you're also, you know, as you were saying, letting loose and kind of your creative side, uh, through the helmet designs that you're doing. And I think that's really cool um, that you're doing and how it just kind of popped up into kind of this little side business. Um, but now I'm getting into the fun part of the, the podcast. This is the, the part I think a lot of people enjoy, uh, when they listen to it, but we're going to get into the lightning round now and the way the lightning round works. And I told you about this, uh, before we started the episode, but basically it's 10 questions. You have to give the first answer that's on the tip of your tongue and you can't think about it because I don't care if it's a stupid answer that comes out. That's going to be the answer. Uh, and that's how it's what I hold all my guests, uh, to be. So are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. Let's All right, let's get to it. Question number one. Everyone in aviation has their own quirks. So on a scale of one to ten, how weird do you consider yourself? Oh, it's ten. Okay, <laughs> yes. No, it, it's so funny. I put this question number one because I didn't, you know, when I started this podcast, I didn't know what it was going to do. And honestly, every episode so far, I've had higher than a seven, which for pilots, this is what I expect. I mean, we're all a little bit, all a little bit weird. But question, <laughs> question number two. What's your favorite word? Oh man, <laughs> that what a weird. Uh, I've had some weird answers too. Favorite word? Oh, I don't know that I have one. That's a that's a I uh, hover. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> all right, question. All right, we'll get to an easy one. Question number three: What's your favorite food? Steak. Steak. Okay. Steak and potatoes. Yeah. What kind of steak? Oh, prime filet. Oh, okay. yeah. Man, you're making me hungry. It's dinner time now. Question number four. What sound or noise do you absolutely love? Jet noise. Jet Jesus. noise? <laughs> Jet noise and that wop, wop, wop. Yep, yep, <laughs> yeah. yep. The old hearing noise. <laughs> uh, question number five. What's the most important thing you carry with you on every single flight? And it could be something maybe even sentimental that you carry. It doesn't have to be anything serious. 
Yeah, uh, I have a St. Michael's. Um, it's not medallion, but it's a little Peter thing my mom gave me. Mm-hmm. Um, Patreon. I'm not Catholic by any means, but I think it's just it's one of those good luck tokens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So question number six. What profession, other than the one that you're in right now, what would you like to attempt if you had the opportunity? <laughs> Astronaut. Yeah. Astronaut. Okay. Yeah, I would, that would be freaking incredible. Yeah. For, I would love it. For the record now, you're the second guest that I've had on that has said astronaut. So that's that's a I good, mean, like, good answer. Kid, that's what the coolest thing you could think of, being a spaceman. The spaceman, like, yes. of course. <laughs> and now finally they're putting, they're going to launch people back in uh, to space. So that's uh, that's good that yeah, we're going mean, to find gonna, you got to die, right? Yeah. So if you're going to die, I might as well do it on the way to Mars and be in the history books. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, question number seven. What are you not very good at? Uh um a lot <laughs> um sometimes multitasking uh besides flying um but uh you know I, I would say it just ebbs and flows with the day man time management sometimes terrible and then you know um staying motivated and you know it's there's stuff oh, man there's, there's so much uh dancing is probably yeah, terrible dancing. <laughs> Trust so. me, my, my wife tells me the same thing. She's like, you're a terrible dancer. <laughs> oh, terrible singing, too. So, <laughs> two careers. You, you wouldn't make it on American Idol, then. <laughs> no, no. Don't look for me. All right. <laughs> uh, question number eight. You know, when you think back to your, you know, your childhood, what was one of the craziest dreams that you ever had? I still have this dream. It's a recurring dream, and it's actually being able to fly, but like, you as a person being able to fly like oh, wow. i'll imagine myself like pushing down away from the ground and it's like it very surreal um man if i could have a superpower that would definitely be it, it superpower. <laughs> all right question number nine what is your biggest pet peeve in aviation oh guys you talk too much on the fucking radio <laughs> <laughs> what, like, say what you to say get on with it yeah it's, it's so funny you'll pull into like podunk wherever and it'll be some redneck on the radio that's like, oh, and they hear your military and they're like, oh, where, where are y'all from? Oh, well, we're from here and we're doing this. And man, you know, I just had potatoes yesterday. It's <laughs> like, dude, we're just trying to fly. Yeah. <laughs> All right. See? Question number 10, last question of lightning round. If you could fly anything other than the aircraft that you're flying currently, what would you fly? And it could A-10. be anything. A-10, the Warthog? A10. A10 is fucking dope. Um, man, the up there, I mean, anything that's open cockpit uh, is, all, is, is pretty high up there as well. Um, there's some World War One. Looking at the, the craziness of aviation between World War One, not just military, but private in general, but like between World War One and World War II, some of those aircraft are just like incredible. Um, yeah, there's... Uh, it's just like, wait, I can't believe somebody got him flat. <laughs> we talk about guys that have balls. The guys. Yeah, they got him. Yeah, oh yeah. The guys back in the 1900s, you know, early 1900s that are strapping themselves in the shit. You know, first guy who did like a carrier shoot from, not a carrier, but from like a battleship where they built up a. Can you imagine like what your thought process was getting into that? You know, no one has ever done this before. Oh uh, yeah. Some of, those, <laughs> some of those YouTube videos, man, are just, just stunning. Oh, yeah. But all right. Yeah. 
Yeah. <laughs> that that concludes the lightning round. Thank you for playing along with me. I love the lightning round. I think it brings out some interesting interesting stuff, and it brings out a different side of all my guests. So thank you for playing along uh, with that. And so we'll kind of wrap up the podcast. And the way I like to wrap up every podcast is I'm going to ask you a question that I always allow the guests to ask me one back. And what I love about this is I don't know what you're going to ask. So it's a good impromptu moment. Um, kind of put me on. I've been put on the spot before. Uh, so we'll see what you have to ask me. But the last question that I have for you is what do you want people to remember you as? Um, a hard worker uh, and someone you could rely on, I think is, is you know, those, those are, those are important to me and something I think that, you know, being raised has always been important as well. Yeah, and it's something too, that's probably, I mean, it's a, it's pretty instrumental in, you know, how you'll be a su- successful aviator, you know, with whatever squadron you're on. Yeah. I, I, in any career, I think you have to, like people have to know that they can rely on you to do your job and do it well. Mm-hmm. All right. So that was my question to you. So what's the question that you want to ask me as your host for today? So one of the things I always like to ask, pilot sir um i always have like those one or two flights to stick out in my mind that's like man like no flight is perfect but damn this was close yep what is your like you felt what like walking on air when you got out um no sorry my dog about came in the room um so like good flight or bad flight good flight good like flight. your most incredible flight like had you smiling ear to ear the most fun thing you've ever done yeah um you know actually i I don't want to, you know, put a plug in for my last episode. Um, but actually it was my last flight. I started a new series on the podcast called first time flyer. Uh, we're all chronicle. Basically anybody that I fly for the first time, I'll basically go through the experience and what I did. Um, and I did that for the first time last, last weekend. Um, it was somebody, I would say, you know, taking my wife up flying was kind of the first moment cause she's really scared of small planes. Um, but I think what was even better was I took my pastor flying. So I've gotten really, really close with my, my church pastor. We've only been going to this church for about, uh, a year now. Um, but he's, he, he follows me. He knows I'm a pilot. And I asked him a couple months ago, I said, Hey, you want to go flying sometime? Uh, he's got five kids and a wife he's never gone flying in a small plane before. So you can only imagine what's going through his head. Oh, this young kid new to the church wants to take me flying. Um, yeah. but we did it. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we, we flew last week. We, we went and got a little, uh, got a little lunch, um, probably about a, just a little short of a, or no, just a little past across country. I think it was like 51 nautical miles or something like that. Um, but that, it was a, per, it was a bluebird day. It was a perfect day. It was no winds. I mean, the plane was doing exactly everything I needed it to do. Um, he flew the plane. I mean, just watching somebody that told you as we're getting into the plane, I've never been in a small plane. I don't know how this is going to go, but I hope it's fun. And then by the end of it, and it's kind of like how I validated how I did is he goes, Hey, next time you have an open like seat, like, could I bring my kids? And like for a, like for a pastor with five kids and everything like for any, any parent to be able to, you know, trust you like that is huge. Yeah. And it's, I mean, his kids, I mean, they're, they're younger than six years old. So, I mean, they're small kids still. And he goes, I think my kids would really enjoy this experience. I said, yes, bring them along anytime. We'll, we'll fly them up. But it was just that whole day, that whole flight. I mean, it's nothing crazy. I don't, you know, I'm not doing this to get paid. Um, 
you know, I'm still training. So, I mean, there were quite a few training flights that were really, really good. Uh, my private pilot check ride was really cool. Uh, the one I actually passed. Um, yeah. so that was a big deal, you know, feeling on cloud nine, but I would say being able to show somebody what it's like to fly and walking through them the whole process and just seeing fr- basically a ball that's like that and then watch them just kind of open up to the experience is like, I mean, it's so cool. Uh, introducing yeah, somebody. Powerful. Yeah. Introducing anybody to aviation and just watch their eyes go like that. Like, it's so cool because not everybody gets to do this. Yeah, no, I, I would say that there's there's definitely quite a been quite quite a few flights, maybe three or four, that had no, like I wish that people knew more about those kind of flights. Yeah, it's like I just didn't know going in like you get to do that. Like, what? <laughs> I didn't realize that was even legal. Yeah, <laughs> and I tell anybody, anybody in the area, even if you're even if you're listening, if you've never flown before and you want to fly, I always say, let me know. I'm, I'm usually always flying, trying to build my hours. And one of the things I hate is I hate flying alone. I know you guys don't fly alone, but th- I feel like it's a wasted flight if I'm just up in the plane by myself um, because I could be using it as a time to introduce somebody else to this awesome world. Oh, yeah. There's a couple of uh, T6 solos. You're by yourself and you're sitting up there like, man, this is weird. Like, <laughs> it's boring, man. <laughs> yeah. uh, don't want anything to go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but um, I really appreciate that question. I mean, that's what I love about that uh, on all these episodes is I don't really expect the question to be uh, to be asked. So I mean, it's just kind of right on right on the spot. But the last question I want to ask you to round out the podcast, and this is one that I'm going to allow you to to ask the audience because then I'm going to grab this question. I'll put it on my social media post about the episode when we re- when we release it. So, what question would you like to ask my small but growing? Uh, audience out there the craziest thing that they've seen flying um whether it's someone else breaking rules that are like what the hell or <laughs> like i don't know just your crazy experience in an aircraft mm-hmm. so there, <laughs> so there you have it everybody so the question is is kind of what's the craziest thing that, that you've seen so far either with flying uh or an aircraft um that's crazy. I don't even know, man, I'm going to have to think about that for me for a little bit. I've seen some pretty crazy, crazy stuff too. I, I mean, granted through my job and working for Bell, uh, having the experience of watching how some of these pilots train and the training that they'll go through and autos and everything. There, there's some crazy stuff, um, uh, that comes, that comes out of that. But man, Seal, that was, that was an awesome podcast. I mean, I learned so much, uh, not just from you, uh, you know, but that whole process of what it takes to become a naval aviator. I mean, it's a lot of work. Um, and I hope people understand that is it's not a cakewalk. I mean, it does take a lot of work from you guys. No, that sucks. As soon as we get off the podcast, I'm going back to study. Going back to studying. <laughs> <laughs> but, but man, I really appreciate your time tonight. I know, I mean, you're busy studying, uh, with everything. It's, it just seems like with what you guys do, I mean, it's always study, 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 but I mean, thank you again for all that you do. Thank you for joining me, uh, on today's podcast. And I have to let you plug it in there. Where can people find your, uh, your, your helmet design, uh, company out there on, on social media? Yeah. Just look up, uh, helmets of Naval Aviation. Um, and, uh, I can, I can do decals for vehicles or, you know, helmets or whatever. I've, I've had private guys, EMS, I've had firefighters. So yeah, just let me, uh, let me hook you up. 
Awesome. And we'll, we'll tag that on the post as well. Uh, so if, if you didn't get that uh, here in the podcast, we'll make sure that it's tagged uh, on the Instagram post. Uh, but man, still, thank you so much again for being my guest today. I really appreciate it. I know we've been trying to work uh, work this episode in for a while, but I'm glad it finally uh, worked out. Uh, and guys, thank you again for listening. Thank you for you know keeping following the podcast and growing. Again, we just passed 8,000 uh, downloads uh, and we're almost to 9,000 now. So we're, we're growing. Uh, and I'm just having fun doing this. But if you haven't already, make sure you go over to at Avgeek Chronicles over on Instagram. Follow the podcast channel. You can find me, my personal channel, at Hodge, H-O-D-G-E underscore C-H-E. Uh, and I post on both um, both accounts. But thank you again, Seal, for being an awesome guest. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we'll see you next week on the next episode of Avgeek Chronicles. See ya. Let's go. Let's go.